Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. Hi, I'm Dan Zoll, Program Manager here at the Commonwealth Club. Please join me in welcoming Judge McEwen and Dr. Kennedy to the Commonwealth Club stage. Well, thank you, Dan. Uh, hello and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. And we'd like to thank uh, the Bernard Osher Foundation for supporting tonight's Good Lit event. And it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Judge Margaret McEwen. She's the author of the book we'll be discussing, Citizen Justice, the Environmental Legacy of William O. Douglas, Public Advocate and Conservation Champion. A long title, so we'll just call it William O. Douglas. Right. <laughs> okay. So Judge McEwen has served almost 25 years on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. She is an affiliated scholar at the Bill Lane Center for the American West at Stanford, an institution that I led for several years, and we were very happy to help her with research assistance and moral support in the writing of this wonderful book. She's also a uh, jurist in residence at the University of San Diego School of Law, a former White House fellow, and she served as special assistant at the White House and a special counsel to Secretary of the Interior, Cecil Andrus. So, Judge McEwen, can I call you Margaret for the rest of this? It will be easier. Thank you. <laughs> so welcome to the Commonwealth Club. Let, let's start out by learning a little bit about you, in addition to what I've just uh, said about your very distinguished career. But tell us a little bit about where you were born, where you grew up, and how you came to be interested in this subject. Sure. Well, I first want to thank you for moderating. I've been a long admirer of uh, Professor Kennedy's work and have read all of it. I encourage you to do the same. And also for Stanford and the Bill Lane Center for providing me with research assistance for the book. I did a presentation there before I had fully decided to write a book, and they asked if there was anything they could do to assist me. And being kind of naive in that regard, I said, well, what would that be? And they said, how about a research assistant? So I jumped at that and uh, took advantage of a research assistant, a PhD student at Stanford. Well, um, David, I can I call you David if please, you call me Margaret? Please. All right, all right. <laughs> it's only fair. I was uh, born and raised in Wyoming. Um, so I consider myself a, a child of the West. And really, from my early days, I was just fascinated with the outdoors. I went hiking and camping anytime I could. If I went to camp, Girl Scout camp, I would then come home and set up a tent in the backyard and just continue that experience. So I learned to mountain climb, to ski, to hike, and, and really to appreciate that almost indescribable connection between um, humankind and nature. So that's where I grew up. I went to um, University of Madrid and the University of Wyoming and then off to Georgetown for law school. And when it came time to uh, get a job, which was a little shocking to all of us uh, in law school at the time, we just enjoyed law school, um, <laughs> I knew I would go west. And having grown up landlocked, I decided I would go somewhere with water and mountains. I wanted to mountain climb, but I also wanted water, so I picked Seattle, Washington, which, of course, you're familiar with because that's your hometown, <laughs> and you're from Washington, so we, we had that connection. Um, so for many years, um, I had worked on a book with my sister about Jackson, Wyoming, um, so I went out to Jackson Hole as often as possible, 
And on one occasion, I was out there snowshoeing, and I'm pretty well familiar with the terrain, but I snowshoed into this homestead, and I had never seen it before. The snow was up to the roof, and um, you couldn't see any of the buildings. So I'm standing on top of the roof of one of these cabins, and a guy comes out, and I say, where am I? And he says, you're at the Murray Ranch. So I all-knowingly said, yeah, I know. I know John Muir is what you mean. He said, no, (laughs) Murray, M-U-R-I-E. And I said, oh, who's that? And I learned that the Murrays were early conservationists and biologists, had worked in Alaska and then Wyoming, and that Olas had been the president of the Wilderness Society. And his wife, Marty, was also very involved, later became known as the grandmother of conservation. So I then became kind of intrigued with this Murray uh, Center. And as time went on, somebody showed me a letter from William O. Douglas to the Murrays that basically said you should give this homestead to the National Park Service. And I thought that was pretty presumptuous, like turn over your house to the National Park Service. So that intrigued me because here's this big fancy guy from Washington, D.C., a Supreme Court justice, and these rather humble people from Wyoming. And so I did a little more research, and what really started as a lark, going back to the Library Congress where Douglas's archives are, going to the Wilderness Society, the Sierra Club archives, the University of Washington, and other places. So what starts as a lark kind of turned into a passion. And then someone said, well, you should write a book. And I said, no, I write opinions, not books. (laughs) I don't have a lot of extra time. But, you know, I was so passionate about this, and it was so interesting And I discovered so many things that I hadn't even anticipated that I decided, okay, I will write a book. And I had done all the research and COVID hit, and so I kind of consider this my COVID project. So by night, I would sit in my office at home and um, actually write the chapters that turned into the book. So it's obvious you had a kind of spiritual connection with Douglas, at least on the dimension of your Shared passion for the outdoors and for wilderness. Yes. Okay. Well, how about you? Thank you for the introduction of yourself to all of us. How about you introduce William Douglas to us? We know, of course, the outlines of his career that he was a prominent long serving. Was he either the most or second most long serving justice? On yeah, the he's court? actually the longest serving, 36 years. Okay. Yeah. So most people probably know at least that much about him. Right. But he's an extraordinarily colorful, large personality. So why don't you just get us a little bit acquainted with... Invite invite Bill Douglas into the room and tell us who he is. Okay, come with me to learn about Bill Douglas. Um, So Douglas, you know, I think is both a fascinating and a flawed figure. And a lot of people remember Douglas because he had four wives um, that he... uh, Gerald Ford, then congressman, tried to impeach him. Um, That sometimes he's been called a communist or Mr. Justice Pangloss or... William Zero Douglas. He's been called all kinds of things. So those are pretty interesting and salacious, and we could go down that path, but that's not what I'd like to do with you tonight. Um, So who was Douglas? Well, he grew up in Yakima, Washington. Yakima is two and a half hours east of Seattle, small town. Uh, There's even a sign when you drive into Yakima. It says, the Palm Springs of Washington. (laughs) I won't comment on that, but he grew up there. Um, his father died when he was young, and, and he was, did not grow up with um, great riches. In fact, the family considered itself pretty poor. 
if you looked out of his house, you could see both Mount Rainier and um, Mount Adams, both of which kind of became his spiritual life. So as a kid, he's sick. Um, He claims he had had polio. That's been disputed. I don't think it matters. We do know he was kind of sick, and he was bullied. So to really overcome that, he goes out into the mountains, and that's where he kind of meets his spirituality. That's his cathedral, as he called it. And he would go out there to try to get stronger and stronger. His mother um, called him treasure. And her goal for him was that he would be president of the United States. So I hope we'll be able to talk about his political aspirations because she wasn't far off. He does become a Supreme Court justice. So he's there in Yakima. And I think that growing up poor plus also his exposure there really influenced who he was. He worked out in the fields with the migrant workers. Um, uh, he worked in, you know, in little shops and stores. Uh, he met uh, Indians, uh, the natives of the area. Yakima tribe is out there. And he kind of has a funny relationship with the Indians. Sometimes he says, I know them well because I met them on the trail. I learned things from the Indians. And then other times he'll say, I really... Not sure I understand or understood the Indians. So he, he had a, a very um, culturally rich time growing up. Then he goes off to Whitman College, small liberal arts college in Walla Walla. They like to say, it's a valley so nice. They named it twice, Walla Walla. <laughs> and he, he was class president. He was in a fraternity. So this kid who was bullied actually becomes much more confident And eventually he goes off to Columbia Law School, and he rides the rails to get there. You you rode the rails while shepherding 2,000 sheep? Put put that together for us. (laughs) Well, you know, at one point he did stop. He was helping a sheep herder. There were sheep on the train. A lot of mixed stories, let's say. (laughs) So there are some tales, some tall tales sometimes, about how he evolved over time. But he does get to Columbia. And he doesn't have money. And a lot of the people at Columbia came from fairly wealthy families. So the first thing he does is he tries to get some money. So he writes a business law course for the undergraduates. He's never even been to law school. <laughs> but the trauma, I but the tra- call, yeah. call it that advisedly, of going from Yakima to Manhattan. is a that, lot. That is quite a journey. Yeah, he even, re- he even led a like kind of a boys club in Manhattan. And what did he miss? The trees. (laughs) So he graduates. And for those of you who are lawyers, you know that the big brass ring is to get that Supreme Court clerkship. He doesn't get it. So that is probably one of the first big disappointments, apart from his father dying. He doesn't get the clerkship. But here's what I have to remind myself. 14 years after graduating, he's on the U.S. Supreme Court. So he must have been one of the youngest justices ever. He was the second youngest justice ever to, to be on the court. So he, he's on the court in 1939, and he's 40 years old. And this is after the amazing. big reorganization, after the, uh, the switch in time to save nine. And exactly. Four, four spaces open up on the court, as I remember. Exactly. And, you know, he had been... Um, After he gets out of law school, since he doesn't get the Supreme Court clerkship and can't go down to Washington, he becomes a lawyer at Crevasse, Wayne & Moore. But he decides that that is boring. 
So he goes back out west, and he says, well, maybe being a country lawyer. No, that's not good. Maybe Seattle. So he actually goes to my former firm, Perkins Cooley. They give him a job, $500 a month. Crevasse says, no, 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 come back with us. So for $6,000, he goes back east. He says it's still boring. And you'll see he kind of changes jobs quite a bit. So then he becomes law professor. At Yale. At first Columbia, even. He starts at Columbia. He's only there a short time. Then he goes to Yale. And he's not there very long either, really for two reasons. One, he says law schools, the problem is they always ask questions and they never answer them. (laughs) So he comes to the attention of none other than Joe Kennedy. And they invite him down to Washington to do a study about kind of hanky-panky going on with bankruptcy and trusteeships and receiverships. So he, Joe Kennedy at this time is the head of the brand-new brand Securities, Securities and Exchange Commission. So then Kennedy decides to step down, so he arranges for Douglas to become a commissioner at a very young age. And when the commissioner later steps down the head, he becomes head of the SEC. So there he is, basically... You know, not even 40 years old, he's head of one of the newest and most important agencies in Washington. When, tap, 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 he gets a call from President Roosevelt. Now, during the time he's in Washington, he becomes a Washington player. He, he's playing uh, poker with the president. And the president and Douglas really resonate with each other in terms of their kind of jokes and their nature, that sort of thing. And he's meeting ambassadors. He's going to parties. So he's, he's on the Washington circuit. And the president calls him in. Douglas says, uh-oh, I'm afraid he's going to appoint me to be the head of the Federal Communications Commission. And that would be deadly boring. Now, you can see he's moved from job to job because nothing really captures his intellect. And I think it was, um, you know, one of his colleagues, Brennan, later said that He's probably one of the few geniuses he'd ever met. Anyway, he goes in to see the president. The president says, I'm going to give you a job. It's like being in jail. And at this point, he knows he's going to be the head of the FCC. Well, the president says, no, I want you to succeed Justice Brandeis on the court. So he's pretty ecstatic. He's not going to go to the FCC. He's just going down the street to the Supreme Court. So he then goes on the court in 1939, which is really a pretty amazing trajectory for someone from Yakima, Washington, to Columbia Law School, to teaching, and now he's on the U.S. Supreme Court. So Quite a a trajectory. It's quite a trajectory. Yeah. I think you have some slides that give us a little better sense of maybe... We don't have any clicker. Oh. Thank you. We don't have any clickers, so we're going to kind of go by um, osmosis here, but we'll go to the next one. That's a cover picture of the book. And I will say that cover, um, that picture was taken by Charles Reich, who wrote The Greening of America, was a Yale Law School professor, and walked often with Douglas on the CNO Canal. He later moved out here, taught law school out in San Francisco, and retired here. And I was fortunate to interview him not long before he died. So uh, he traded some photos I had with some photos he had. 
And that's one of them. One of the things he said about Douglas, you always see Douglas with a camera around his neck. He loved to take photos. But Charles says to me, Charlie actually is his name. He said he actually also preferred to have his photo taken, <laughs> which you see. <laughs> so we'll take a look. And so one of the questions is, where do I come up with this title, Citizen Justice? Well, in the first decade on the court, Douglas was on the court when they heard a, a case um, here, um, O'Malley v. Woodruff. And here's the issue in the case. Should federal judges pay income tax? The Constitution says that while you're in service as a federal judge, they can't diminish your salary. So some federal judges said, well, if, you, if we have to pay income tax, that means we have less money. Therefore, that's unconstitutional. Well, that took about a nanosecond for the court to say <laughs> that is a very bad theory. But when they finished it, Douglas writes in this little booklet of his. He, he kept a diary the first couple of years. He writes in this booklet basically, oh, I just made myself a first-class citizen, and I can do anything as a citizen so long as it doesn't interfere with the court. And I might say he had a kind of an expansive view <laughs> of what doesn't interfere with the court. So that's where this title comes from. And at this point, you know, he's kind of off and running, at least in his head, that he's not just a Supreme Court justice, but he's going to be doing all these other things. So let's go to the next one. Um, we'll come back to this, I think, but this is some great pictures of him hiking on the CNO Canal, and that's really, I think, the catalyst that put him into the conservation and environmental movement. He also, as I said, he was hobnobbing with ambassadors, members of Congress, and presidents. So here he is with Kennedy on the left. Um, Kennedy wasn't in office long enough to make a real environmental mark, but he was working with Douglas. Douglas was inviting him out to be keynote for the Sierra Club, which he was unable to do. Douglas says, take Bobby Kenny to Russia, go hiking, which Douglas does. So they were connected quite a bit. And one of the things Douglas said about Kennedy is the problem with Jack is he never slept on the ground. And, of course, the Kennedys were kind of the blue bloods, and Douglas came from a very different background. And there's Johnson who signed into law the Wilderness Act in 1964 and with whom Douglas had a lot of dealings on various projects. And at one point, Douglas wrote a book, one of maybe 50 books that he wrote, um, called Farewell to Texas. And Lady Bird hated that title because she felt it was really dismissive of a state that she and Lyndon loved. Tried to get him to change the title? No way. He, he wasn't changing the title. And so this book, Farewell to Texas, which talks about how Texas is being degraded by oil and mineral exploration, how they're not saving a lot of the incredible scrub areas, um, did come to pass. He tried to mollify Lady Bird, but he had a great relationship with Lady Bird because, you know, we all remember her campaign for flowers and beautification and all of that really fit with Douglas. I think that may be. And then just this last slide, which we'll come back to some of these. On the left is his cabin in Goose Prairie, Washington. And that's where he would go every summer. In fact, before the court period was done, the term, he would get on the plane and fly out to uh, Goose Prairie. 
at that point, he'd written his dissents, many of them. He'd written his opinions, and he figured, what else is there to do? I'm done. So his colleagues are back in Washington, finishing up, trading emails. They didn't have email, trading mail and trading um, comment memos. He's out at Goose Prairie. And he would say, well, it only took me three, four days a week to do this job. <laughs> you can imagine his colleagues, they were not particularly endeared by that. Um, over on the right, oops, I'll go back to that slide if we can. And over on the right, that's his uh, wife, Kathy. She was his fourth wife, uh, long-term wife. She was 23 when they were married. He was 67. She went on to get a law degree, become a, a well-known environmental lawyer, and also philanthropist, and really made her own mark. And then up at the top are his neighbors at Goose Prairie. They're called the Double K Girls because they had a ranch called the Double K Ranch, a dude ranch. They're also called the Blister Sisters by the Forest Service because they were incredibly tough to deal with. And they joined up with Douglas to try to protect some of that area in the Cascades near their ranch and near his house. And ultimately, they did. Um, after his death, the William O. Douglas uh, Wilderness was named, and uh, Washington State's two Republican congressmen at the time, uh, two senators, really gave tribute to Douglas and what he had done for the wilderness. So they are very pleased to designate. And if you're in the W.O. Douglas Wilderness, it's a beautiful terrain, and in parts of it, you can look up and you can see Mount Rainier. So it really kind of honored where Douglas started and where he ended. So those slides give you a little more texture because he had a life on the court and off the court, for sure. You know, <clears throat> growing up in the Northwest, as I did, you heard Douglas's name a lot as it uh, dwelled in the habitat that I lived in and as it affected the Northwest. So I was surprised a bit to learn in your book that he really gets engaged politically and actively with the, what we call, broadly speaking, the conservation movement, only kind of late in life and as a result of his engagement with an issue not on the West Coast but on the East Coast, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal in 1954, I believe, exactly. is when, when the mm -hmm. episode happens. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, uh, this is among the many things I learned from your rather terrific book. So you want to just help our... The audience here understand what this Chesapeake and Ohio Canal issue is all about and sure. how it ignited his interest in conservation advocacy for the rest of his life. Well, some of you may have been there. It just starts in Washington, D.C. It goes 189 miles up to Cumberland, Maryland. And it actually was one of our commercial waterways. But over time, that um, uh, faded away in terms of a way of, of moving goods. So the Park Service had this idea, why don't we put a highway into the CNO Canal area, and that way more people can get there. So there was an op-ed in the Washington Post that basically said, what a great idea. And the editors endorsed that. Well, Douglas is outraged because he, he knew that area. Uh, in fact, uh, he later lived very close to the CNO Canal. And so he writes an op-ed back to the Post as a sitting justice, and he basically says, you're wrong. This is a place of solitude, of majesty. It should be saved. It needs friends. And I invite you to come with me and hike on the CNO Canal. So the editor said, okay, we'll do that. And if you look on Douglas's calendar that day, it says hike. <laughs> well, it was really about seven or eight days it took the hike. 
but it's kind they of average the, 23 miles a day. Yeah, right 23. There. And he's a fast hiker, four to five miles an hour, and sometimes faster even. So he has, he's tall, he's big, and he has long legs, but that is a really prodigious pace for any of you who are hikers. So they go this whole way. Douglas does the whole thing. Um, this, the editors kind of fall out. Um, they don't make it the whole way. When they finish, there's just nine people, and one of those is Olas Muri that we talked about, the Muri Ranch in Wyoming. Olas, head of the Wilderness Society, and they become acquainted. And that really begins for them a relationship that um, crystallizes over time into some other protest hikes, saving some other areas. So he finishes the hike in Washington, and he's very strategic. He could have finished it up in Maryland, but no, he wants it in Washington. So what, the Secretary of Interior could come, all the Post editors could come, he'd have a lot of publicity. And then he really starts what I think is kind of an MO. He sees this threatened place. Um, He gathers support from the grassroots, from various citizens. He forms a committee. Of course, he's the chair of the committee. And the committee is to save the CNO Canal. And eventually it does become a national historic park. The Park Service says it's the only park walked into existence. And, of course, it's dedicated to him some years later. But he had this love of nature, David, as you know. But up to that point, he hadn't done anything public about it. So this is really the first point that I could find or that other scholars have found that it just like ignites him. And now uh, he cannot be stopped, basically. He's off and running all over America. But of course, the CNO Canal is in his backyard. And he hikes there every Sunday, um, every Sunday that he's not out protesting in some other part of the United States. And so it's, it's really very special. Takes his law clerks hiking there from time to time. And I think it remained for him really uh, a kind of signature event that put him in touch with uh, the Wilderness Society and other people in the conservation movement. You know, given the depth and, and dynamism of his interest in wilderness preservation, dating apparently from this moment, there's a bit of a mystery here why he turned down the offer to be Secretary of the Interior some 14 years earlier. Well, exactly. That would have been a perfect job for him, uh, except for it involved a lot of administration, thousands of people in the Park Service, the Bureau of Land Management, Bureau of Indian Affairs. And I think he realized in his heart of hearts and in his ego that he was something bigger than that. And the Secretary of Interior, as we know, it only spans that period that the president who appointed you is in power. So he was interested in politics. He always said, oh, I don't want to be a politician. But as you know from reading the book, he had a lot of political aspirations. He aspired to be vice presidential candidate in 44, I believe. Exactly. Yeah, and he yeah. came close. He came close. Um, Until Roosevelt settled on the so-called second Missouri Compromise. Yes. Harry Truman. Harry <laughs> Truman. There is supposedly a piece of paper that says Truman Douglas or... Did it say Douglas Truman? <laughs> no one's been able to <clears throat> confirm that, but Douglas disclaimed any interest, although at the time he had a cabin in Oregon, 
And so he set up a phone line between his cabin, which wasn't so easy to do, and the post office, just in case anyone called from the Democratic National Convention. But so he did not become, we know that, we did not become vice president. Truman becomes president. Uh, his uh, very close friend, Roosevelt, dies. And that was hard on, on Douglas. So later, Tr- uh, Truman then asked Douglas to be his vice president. And Douglas supposedly said, why be number two to a number two? Um, <laughs> and he did go on to say that politics is perishable, but life on the court is enduring and, in, and lasting. So that's, you know, in the late 40s. And by then, he'd been on the court a decade. I think he was always restless, um, even on the court. He was always looking for something else to do. He then had a huge horse accident mm. and derailed him for quite a while. He broke 23 ribs when this horse, like 1,600 pounds, lands on him up in the Cascades. And that's when uh, he wrote this book of Men and Mountains, which a lot of hikers and, and people who are interested in the outdoors have read. But that also got him going in terms of writing books. And then he meets the CNL Canal, and he has his incredible um, interest in the environment. And, and it also is pretty clear he's not going to be president or vice president. All I will say, even into the Johnson era, there was a little bit of hinting that if Johnson wanted him as vice president, he would consider it. And he also had told someone else, if he were nominated secretary of state, he might <laughs> consider that also. Well, history has it that he stayed on the court. But as you say, quoting him, or I'll paraphrase it, politics is transient, but the court is, if not permanent, at least it's long term. Correct. But, but on, at the same time, that raises questions about his behavior, which is a thread that runs all through your book, and you're in a particularly good position to uh, think about this, given your own career. It, it, he at times seems to step right up to the boundary of what's appropriate for a sitting Supreme Court justice to, to do in the realm of advocacy. Mm-hmm. But at other times, he steps back as he recuses himself from the case we'll discuss in a minute, I hope, the uh, Sierra Club versus Morton. So talk to us a little bit about that, about what, what are the issues that you as a judge thought troubled you as you yeah. reviewed his career? Well, I've had a longstanding interest in ethics. So one area I thought I contribute in with respect to Douglas was looking at it through the lens of judicial ethics. And he really balked at people telling him what to do, for example. So when he says that he can do anything that doesn't interfere with the court, I think both he um, and Justice Frankfurter felt that that meant a specific case. And I don't think they considered the separation of powers because, of course, um, the notion that you would be telling the Forest Service how to run the forest or that you might be telling the Army Corps of Engineers not to put up a dam, those tend to fall in the executive arena. Or in the congressional arena, he was down there a lot. Uh, Washington had two amazing senators, as you know, Magnuson and Jackson. Uh, they were they were called the Twin Towers of Power because they really brought home the bacon for Washington State. They were State. also sometimes called the senators from Boeing. The senators from <laughs> Boeing, exactly. <laughs> Well, Douglas had this cabin out in Washington, and so he worked them very hard on environmental and other issues. So when he talked about not interfering with the court, well, that wasn't a specific case, 
but it was part of this tripartite government that we have. So I think there's some issues with that. Now, one thing, um, the his brethren, of course, were a little um, skeptical of him and all of his writings. So at one point, somebody proposed, why don't we approve people's writings before they go out? And you can imagine... They're, they're extrajudicial writings. Extrajudicial writings. Well... That sent Douglas over the edge. He's a big First Amendment person, along with his colleague Black. And he said, that's ridiculous. He said, and so then they said, well, at least we should report the income from the writings. He didn't love that idea, but he said, well, how about the justices who own stocks? So he was a little ahead of his time on that. And he said, if, they, if I have to report my income from writing a book, how about all the stocks they own? Shouldn't they have to report that? which ultimately has come to pass. And when Douglas had to report, he'd put a little asterisk on his report, like, reporting under protest. (laughs) In the general realm of judicial ethics, as you point out, there's a difference, rather sharp right line differences, at least as I see it, between judges like yourself in the federal uh, courts and the justices of the Supreme Court. That They're not subject to the same set of rules and regulations. Do I have that right? And if so, do you think that's a good idea? Well, I think you should ask that question to Chief Justice Roberts. Um, But I will say this. I don't have him here to talk to. (laughs) We'll invite him next. But the justices are subject to two rules that are often forgotten about and overlooked in the press. One, all of us, when we take our oath of office, agree to decide cases fairly and without um, deference to one side or the other. So we take a judicial oath that guides also the justices. We also have a statute that requires us to recuse if there's an appearance of impropriety. Appearance. And that applies by its language to both the judges and justices. So he was bound by those as our all justices and federal judges. We have a code of ethics for what is called the lower federal courts, courts of appeal, district courts, and others. And there's not a specific code for the Supreme Court, although the Chief Justice has indicated that they do have internally such a code and that they generally follow the other code. But when we go back in time... um, this was not as lively a discussion as it is now. And so I wanted to highlight where we were in history with Douglas and what some of the issues were that were raised and really use it as a lesson in history. You know, as the book makes very, very clear, most of of, uh, Douglas's environmental advocacy was extrajudicial, and that's what raises the ethical questions we're talking about. But there's at least one instance where he takes a stand in the law or on the law, although it's in dissent, in this case that you give quite a bit of attention to, Sierra Club versus uh, Morton. Mm -hmm. It's it's, uh, Rogers Morton, I believe, one of the few secretaries of the interior not from the western states. Right. Almost all of them from the western states. Why? Because almost everything that interior runs is in the federal lands that are disproportionately in the west. But in any case... Uh, it's the one case, well, maybe not the one, but it's the salient case, I think, at least as I read it, where Douglas actually stands on the law to make it a very, very important environmental statement, but one that was a little bit ahead of its time since he was in dissent. So you want to tell us about that sure. case? 
Well, I would say one other thing. He was very close to Stuart Udall, um, another Westerner who served as Secretary of Interior for eight years. So they had almost a partnership on the environment. Sierra Club v. Morton. It um, originates uh, here in California in uh, Mineral King Valley in the Sierra Nevadas and um, beautiful area. The uh, Forest Service had granted Walt Disney a, a permit to build a ski resort. And what that would entail is, of course, putting up all the paraphernalia and everything you need for a ski resort, but you also need a highway to get people there. So once again, highways intervene. The Sierra Club sued to stop this. In the district court here in San Francisco, the district court at least granted a preliminary injunction to halt all of this until there could be more study. It went to the Ninth Circuit, and they said, no, we're not going to halt it. It then goes to the Supreme Court. And when it gets to the Supreme Court, the Sierra Club tried to roll the dice and try something separately. Normally, when you bring a lawsuit, you have an individual person who's aggrieved. You would say, um, my client hiked there or they camped there. And you build this ski resort, you're going to just take out all of this pristine valley. So the Sierra Club tried something a little different. And they said, well, really who's damaged uh, is the valley and the rivers. And we should be able to sue in their name. Well, the Supreme Court did not agree with that. Um, But meanwhile, Douglas is going to sit on the case. And And he he had been... He quit the Sierra Club in advance of... Right. He had been a member of the board of the Sierra Club in the 60s. Um, And at points he said he was bored with the board. And at other points he said, no, it's really very hard, which it was back then, to go from Washington out here to San Francisco for the board meetings. So he resigns from the board... He remains a life member, and he continues to protest with the Sierra Club and on their behalf around the country. Case comes to the Supreme Court, and the scuttlebutt clerks, justices, will he recuse? Is he too close to the Sierra Club? And so you can see this because you can go back now, and I can read from some of the other justices questions about this. And I've spoken with all of um, Justice Douglas as almost every living law clerk and law clerks who were in the court at the time. So that was definitely the big question. And the answer was he might have considered it, although you don't see it in his notes, but he decided not to recuse. So two things happen. He decides not to recuse. And at the same time, there was a professor out at the University of Southern California who had hit upon this theory that we talked about, that you didn't need to be a person to be aggrieved. You could be a natural phenomenon. Um, just like a ship can sue or a corporation, how about a valley or a mountain? So he asked the librarian, is there any lawsuit that's apropos to this? And they say, yeah, there's one going from the Ninth Circuit to the Supreme Court. Well, he then writes an article very quickly, and he kind of bootlegs it to Douglas, not to any other justice. Um, and it's still in draft form, and Douglas's assistant writes back and says, can you send us more of the article? Oh, we're very interested in your article. And you can now piece together all the correspondence between the Law Review at USC and Douglas. And um, eventually, he's able to um, sit on the case, which he does, and he decides not to recuse himself. 
and the majority of the court says, no, the case has to go back. The valley itself is not enough to be injured. Well, Douglas Penn's, what I, I think really is his most famous dissent, um, in which he talks about um, the valleys and the rivers and why they too shouldn't have standing or the authority to come to court. And a fair amount of it really reflects what the law professor had written, but it also, you can find it earlier in Douglas's works. It almost reads like um, the book you may be familiar with, San uh, County Almanac. It could be Thoreau talking. He really weaves actually a, a very kind of mellifluous, beautiful dissent. After the hearing, he sat down and he wrote that in about two hours. He also takes aim at the Forest Service in his dissent. Uh, when, when he was a kid, he loved Gifford Pinchot. He said, if I grew up, I could be a forester. The first forester of the United States. First forester of the U.S. But then Gifford Pinchot, after he becomes forester, he adopts kind of a multi-use policy. Forests are for conservation, they're for cutting, they're for recreation, all kinds of things. So Douglas quickly decides Pinchot is not for him. So he goes after the Forest Service really pretty hard. And what happens as a practical matter is one of the law clerks working on that is now our own uh, Judge Alsop on the Northern District of California. And so Douglas wrote his own decisions. He didn't let the law clerks tinker with anything that important. They could do research. <laughs> but he says to Bill Alsop, here, here's the decision. Would you fill in the footnotes? <laughs> so some of us would think that might be a little bit of a backward way to go about an opinion, but it's what Douglas did. So uh, Bill Alsop, as a young lawyer, had a tough job to fill in like when he takes after the Forest Service and this and that. But that became the opinion. And it is now known as this concept of rights of nature. So right off the bat, it didn't really take hold. Um, but over time, a number of our municipalities have actually put that in their codes, that citizens of that municipality can actually sue on behalf of a natural phenomenon. And it's also taken hold across the world where it's in some countries' constitutions. And even more recently, um, New Zealand concluded a pact with the Maoris in which um, they protected um, a, a mountain and a river. So this idea of rights of nature, he was, as he said, writing for the future. It's you know, had some legs down the road, but it's not well accepted in jurisprudence. On the other hand, Douglas was the one earlier who had acknowledged that aesthetics can be a reason for someone to be able to come to court and protect an area. So he combined aesthetics with the object itself. And the notion of aesthetics is still um, important. You know, th this case is 1972. It is. So it's in the context of a basket of environmental legislation, the National Environmental Protection Act, mm -hmm. the Clean Air Act, and not least of all, the Endangered Species Act. Correct. Why didn't they provide obvious foundations for exactly this claim? So he wouldn't have to be in dissent. He could have written the majority opinion. Well, because the, in a way, the timing of when the case started and when those that legislation came into being it came in soon after most of that. And so the case wasn't brought under those statutes. Mm -hmm. um, and 
as time went on, all of that environmental legislation really came rushing to the fore as Douglas is leaving the court. Mm. But he writes more dissents on the court's failure to take those kind of cases. Um, And he's a big dissenter, like, why don't you take a case on this important National Environmental Policy Act or some of these others? So he continued to dissent. As you know, he was a big dissenter. Mm-hmm. He was 484 he, dissents, I think. Right. And in maybe 40% of those, he's the sole dissenter. <laughs> um, he, he was really a dissenter extraordinaire. And I think one of the things you think about with Douglas is you think both about the lessons you learn from being a dissenter and a contrarian, both the positives and the negatives. Um, because a question is, would he have had more force if he had tried to corral his colleagues, instead of jumping on the plane to Goose Prairie at the end of the season. So Douglas always said, I have no soul to save but my own. And that was the way he lived his life. Um, But that also gave him the fortitude to say and think what he thought was appropriate. He wasn't really just cowed by social pressures. But uh, some other cases for which he's no less famous, Griswold v. Connecticut, for example, where he takes a quite a creative approach to reading the Constitution. He did persuade his colleagues. He did. So why, why, did, why was he not successful on these grounds? It's hard to know because Griswold v. Connecticut was a case on privacy, um, in much in the news these days, and he really cemented the right to privacy. Now, he did it by referring to privacy as a penumbra of an amendment to the Constitution. His colleagues, who also joined him, had a little less creative theories. Um, And so he did get a 7-2 majority in that case. And I think you see that also in some First Amendment cases and some criminal justice cases. There are other cases, um, big case about a, a dam in Idaho where he persuaded his colleagues to actually send it back to the agency. So he did from time to time. But I think when he wanted to dissent for the future, he had a harder time corralling his his colleagues. Yeah, yeah. that was just his nature. Was the dam one of the lower snake dams that are It was, yes. And it was the first time, actually, that the Supreme Court actually uh, sent, you know, didn't uphold a permit for a dam. It's in the um, uh, Snake River in Idaho. And it went back, and then that area actually turns into a protected area over time. So once again, that was a Sierra Club-related case, and uh, he persuaded his colleagues. So he had that ability, and he's so smart. The question is, why didn't he use it more? Well, part of it is I think he felt he stated his position, and you're either on board with me or you're not. Did he have any particular affection for or contempt for any of his colleagues on the bench that you're free to talk about. <laughs> <clears throat> He's not here to defend himself, and neither is Justice Frankfurter. So <laughs> there's a very good biography recently out by Justice Frankfurter, and it's very clear that they were, you know, did, disliked each other. Both of them said the court is like a monastery, which if you look at their extracurricular activities, you would find to be a little disingenuous. 
it was a very unusual monastery that these guys were in. Um, but they did not like each other. And you would have thought, given where they came from, Frankfurt up from Harvard as a law professor and Douglas down from Yale, that they might have actually had a lot more in common. And they did at one point, but then they completely diverged. And they also were both confidants of uh, FDR. But that in particular, he had a, a, a great affection for some of his chief justices. So I think he had a a real ability, particularly with those in the conservation movement. Um, he was their hero. He was their band leader. But he also had colleagues on the court um, that respected him and that he respected. Um, but he was he was not one to jawbone endlessly, which was what he one of the things he disliked about Frankfurter. <laughs> so we're at the point in this discussion when we'd like to entertain some questions from the audience here and the audience, the digital audience. Uh, you know how it works here at the Commonwealth Club. If you'd write your question on one of the cards that you'll find nearby, or you can send them in by whatever device digitally, and we'll uh, ask the questions to the author. You know, Margaret, you make me think of this discussion of a moment in 1960, when I was a kid, more or less, in Seattle, and John F. Kennedy was campaigning for president. And he gave a speech that I heard, and it's, it's stuck in my mind for the last half century plus. <clears throat> a question was put to him about uh, hydroelectric power, mm. which is a big deal in Washington State. Yes. Washington State gets something like 60 or 65 percent of its electricity from hydropower. And Kennedy, by way of answer, said, wherever water falls from a higher elevation to a lower, we should harvest its energy and not let a drop of that energy go to waste. Now, Douglas would have absolutely gone crazy had he heard that live. I don't, maybe he did, for all I know. But what this, this, that comment of Kennedy's focused for me this perennial, per- persistent, stubborn issue of whether nature is to be valued most for its pristine untrammeled character or for the benefits it can give to mankind other than just in the spiritual and aesthetic realms. Right. So did, did, did Douglas have a consistent attitude about that all his life or did he change his mind about that particular question, which I think is the question about how we relate to nature? Well, it's, it still remains a burning question among the public, the conservationists, the environmentalists. Douglas had a list of what he called... Um, his public enemies. Number one was the Army Corps of Engineers, which, of course, does the dams. And he wrote an article for Playboy magazine in which he decried um, the dams. And you might say, well, what is he doing writing for Playboy? He said, well, that's because young men read Playboy. I'd like to reach them. Um, so he, here's where he parted ways with FDR, because FDR coming you know, out of the Depression and the Dust Bowl he was balancing these economic and natural, you know, and, and FDR actually created a number of national parks and wildernesses. So Doug, uh, Douglas and Roosevelt were opposed on these issues. I think that Douglas started out more of what you would call a potentially multi-use type person, and he then careened toward the preservationist, which is at all costs you preserve. And I think of two things about Douglas. He had two principles. One is you have to save wilderness now because if you don't save it, it's gone. And then his other principle was the reason that we have the Constitution 
is to get the government off the backs of little people. So those are his two themes, and you see them in his environmental work, and you also see it in uh, his court work. Margaret Houdini, like you've just uh, synopsized the next question, which just oh. came in. <laughs> but the, the questioner says, uh, Douglas believed in getting government off the backs of the little guy. You just quoted him. And this question has a bit of an edge to it, so you ready? Okay. He says, how do you square that with his progressive environmental views? Well, um, number one, I, I think that many of the agencies that were empowered to protect the environment, he did not think they were doing their job. So he was there to intervene, basically. So I think that's how he would, he would square it, as he didn't see that as an inconsistent view. But there are a lot of people out there today who think it's, it's big government, especially in the West where the federal government owns so many resources, right. at least the land. Um, something like 40% of the 11 Western states are federally, is federal land. Correct. And a lot of people think that big government is just in everybody's face out there in the Western landscape all the time. The, yeah, that's well, true. I mean, here's the kind of the irony of history and timing is there was a lot of thought that the states were not protecting the environment. And so that was the value of moving it to the federal government. And so you see that you know, with these national environmental laws. And then as time goes on, the concern is, well, now the federal government is actually controlling our land, everything from grazing to water to all the issues that permeate the West. So if Douglas were to come back today, he would, he would probably say the federal government is doing is too much in the face of the citizens. And that wouldn't be inconsistent with his view. You know, you make me think, I, I teach some of this material in, at Stanford, and I gave a lecture in class some time back about the, the, the consequences of the fact the federal government has retained the ownership of so much land right. in the western states. It's definitional of the character of the mm-hmm. region, because in the rest of the country it's just not true. So I described how this is the case, especially in the rural areas of the west. And a student came up to me afterwards, and he was from, growing up in the Sierra foothills somewhere, he said, that's very interesting, Professor Kennedy. He said, this is the, today is the first time I've had any inkling about what animates all my redneck neighbors. <laughs> 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 because they, in a way, the metropolitan west, you never, you're totally unaware of it. But if you live in the rural west, and especially if you're in an extractive or agricultural industry, you're dealing with the federal government all the all time. All the time. Yeah. And, and, you know, the one thing about Douglas, let's say, with respect to dams, he kind of was a canary in the coal mine because now we're seeing, at least in Washington State, some of those dams are coming down. Well, the Elwha Dam came down, and the, the lower snake dams may or may not come down, but nobody's going to, in our lifetime, oh. or our grandchildren's lifetime, yeah. going to take down Grand Coulee or Bonneville or Chief Joseph. Or- Grand Coulee, as you know, was FDR's centerpiece um, dam. And hydroelectric power remains just such an important source of energy. Yeah. And I'm told by people who know more about the construction of these dams than I do, that Hoover and Grand Coulee and the other huge dams in the Mm -hmm. Western Rivers were engineered to last for 10,000 years. (laughs) So So we won't be here to see what happens. (laughs) What it would take to take them down, we don't want to think about that. So here's another question, actually two questions that are kind of related. Mm -hmm. Uh, first is, what was Douglas's relationship with Earl Warren, another Westerner? 
And a related question, and actually I hadn't thought about this until I just saw the question. In your book, there's very little about Nixon, mm-hmm. although a lot of the environmental legislation we just mentioned actually happens on Nixon's watch. He's still on the court. Uh, what's his relationship with Warren in the first instance and then Nixon? And with Nixon, yeah. Well, let me, let me just say I didn't try to do a complete biography and I only focused kind of narrowly. But with respect to Warren, I think he had a warm relationship. Um, and, of course, the Warren court was the high point of many of these um, civil rights decisions that were so highly endorsed by Douglas. The other thing that Warren represents, of course, is how do we think of our justices? So here we had Earl Warren investigating what was clearly a political issue, and that was the assassination of John F. Kennedy. And so here you have a, in some ways, the justices were viewed um, as taking them off the shelf when you needed them. We needed Justice Jackson to go to Nuremberg. He went to Nuremberg. We needed so-and-so to do a commission during World War II. Justice, Justice Roberts. Roberts comes off the shelf. Justice uh, Warren, or Chief Justice Earl Warren. Um, with Nixon, he did not have, as you might imagine, a particularly um, warm relationship like he did um, with the other presidents. Um, but also, the, you know, the, timing, the timing was such that at that point, um, I would say he was doing more on-the-ground, state-by-state advocacy. And because he didn't have this personal relationship with Nixon, he was not invoking Nixon to do things for him like he did, for example, Johnson. You know, on a related note here, there's a passage in your book that I'm going to quote at you and ask you to comment on it <clears throat> about this general question about the, the propriety of justices on the Supreme Court being clearly recognized as advocates for one or another cause. Uh, it's, it's a matter for some concern, no question about it. But you, you say the following. I think you do it by way of justifying your clear admiration for Justice Douglas. You say, few question whether Thurgood Marshall a strong advocate for civil rights before joining the court, could sit on race discrimination cases, or if Justice Ginsburg, a prominent litigator on behalf of women's rights, could sit, in, could sit in on sex discrimination cases. The rub comes in whether those beliefs are so fundamental and unwavering that they impair a judge's ability to be objective and affirmatively tilt the outcome of a case. There's, there's a sitting justice today, and I wonder if you have, maybe this is a question that's out of order, you can decline to answer <laughs> Amy Coney Barrett. Well, I, I, I think, you know, if um, this were a courtroom, I would say that um, the witness would be instructed not to answer that question. <laughs> um, I just want to say one thing about Douglas that relates to that last passage. He supposedly gave a lecture at a law school in which he said, given the choice between the environment and a corporation, he would tilt to a corporation. And that clearly is out of line in terms of you can have knowledge, you can have appreciation, you can even have inclinations, but you cannot tilt your ruling um, on the basis of your personal beliefs. Now, I, of course, was very careful in the book not to go into any of the current Supreme Court because Justice Douglas was long dead before any of them were appointed. And so... um, 
I've made it a practice not to to comment on the on the current Supreme Court. I'm not saying it's out, out of order to ask. You can always ask, but I'll just first, dec- first Amendment. I'll just <laughs> and I'll just decline to answer. <laughs> Fifth Amendment. <laughs> Who am I quoting the Constitution to a federal justice? You, you can see that he may be an emeritus in history, but he knows his Constitution. Can you speculate another questioner asks how Douglas would feel about offshore drilling rights and federal management of natural resources on the seafloor, to which we might add the just recently licensed, I believe, uh, offshore wind harvesting propositions on the California coast? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think on a lot of these, Douglas might be torn because he'd be looking at renewable energy versus other energy, and he might not have a clear answer. Um, and there are cases, a good example for him, are cases where you had um, the Indians versus the fish, uh, a continuing issue. And he might typically tip to the Indians but if you read through all of his cases, you'll find that push comes shove, he often tips to the fish. So I think those cases, like the question that this individual raised, are, are, are a more complex analysis. And, you know, I think Douglas did not think of himself as a one-note pony, um, because obviously there are many, many cases that he dealt with that weren't conservation or environmental related. Um, but that the environment and conservation were so into his blood from as a childhood and then from his lobbying that he couldn't help but see these cases through that lens. So he definitely, you know, people always say, do you admire him? Do you like him? I don't, you know, I, I think that I'm in awe of someone like Justice Douglas. That's what I can say. He is so prolific. He is so smart. But there are certainly aspects of Justice Douglas, whether some of them are personal and some are legal, that I wouldn't necessarily ascribe to. I wouldn't sign myself up to say I want to be an acolyte of that kind of jurisprudence, for example. But that doesn't mean that there's not a lot to learn from how he operated um, both on and off the court. Well, like those... Law school professors that uh, Douglas disliked. We've asked a lot of questions and only answered some. (laughs) So our thanks to uh, Judge Margaret McEwen, the author of Citizen Justice, The Environmental Legacy of William O. Douglas. We encourage everyone here to pick up a copy of Judge McEwen's book at the stall outside or at your local bookstore or online. And if you'd like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual and in-person programming more available, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. I'm David Kennedy. Thank you. Take good care of yourselves and of planet Earth. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Kennedy. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.